Good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to ask you to take it and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read a lot of this story today just because that's the only way I know how to preach it, so uh, you're going to have to bear with me in that. While you're doing that, I'm going to just give you a little bit of information about... uh, about what we're talking about today. I want to ask you, though, bear with me as we go throughout this message today. I wrote this uh, in a hotel room occupied by 10 people, eight of whom were middle school boys, right? And I told somebody, I don't, like, I don't know what you know about middle school boys. Some of you might have middle school boys. But eventually, after about two or three days in a room with six or seven middle school boys, it starts to smell a little bit like uh, what I imagine the first level of hell would smell like, right? <laughs> So, like, y'all bear with me. There was a lot of distractions. But we just got back from youth camp. So we're really tired but really excited to be here today. Uh, God did a lot of great things in the life of our youth uh, this past week. Uh, But we were tired. We were ready to get home. Uh, Friday night I was coming in uh, over the river bridges. I had taken the rental van back and was coming back in. And I got pulled over. It was the second time that day we had been pulled over on the way home. Things were not going good. Uh, and a police officer asked me, he said, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? And I, I was very respectful. I said, sir, I honestly have no idea why you pulled me over. I know I wasn't speeding. He said, no, sir, uh, failure to maintain lane. And I, in my mind, I was thinking, sir, I've just been at youth camp with 10, uh, 10 kids all week long. You're lucky I'm awake, all right? Much less maintaining lane. But uh, if, if you want to just be encouraged, just find some of our youth who went to camp this past week and just ask them about uh, the time they had. God really moved in their lives in a big way, and we're, we're thankful for that. So as we start to, as we start to think about the uh, first Samuel chapter 17, we've been looking in this series, Faith versus Fear, uh, at David and Goliath. We've been focusing a lot on David and Goliath, and today I want us to ask a particular question as we focus on David and Goliath, and that question is this. Do I, so do you, do I face obstacles like a Christian does? All right? Do I face obstacles like a Christian? Uh, A better way for me to ask that might be this. When you come across hard times in your life, do you face obstacles? Do you suffer like a Christian? Or do you suffer, do you face obstacles just like the rest of the world? Because here's what I want you to understand, even before we get started this morning, is that as the people of God, we have been called to face obstacles in our life in a way that is different than the world faces obstacles, okay? And in that, what God has ordained is that when we come across hard times, when we come across suffering, the way we suffer actually points people toward Christ because they see us in our suffering, they see us as we face obstacles, and what happens is, as people look and they say, they have something different than what I have, right? So it should be distinctively Christian, the way we face obstacles, the way we suffer. And listen, I want us to, we're going to walk through that. And at the very end of the day, I'm gonna, I want us to talk about explicitly what, how we should be facing some obstacles in our life. Because I'm not, uh, I don't wear rose-colored glasses to the world. Uh, in fact, you, when Jeremy gets back, he's in Argentina this week shooting doves. I know, right? Hard life, right? All right, but when he gets back, you could go to him and you could, you could say, describe for me Dallas's personality. And he would say, Dallas is negative now. Nancy, all right? What I prefer to say is that I don't wear rose-colored glasses. I'm a realist. So saying that, I know that there are a lot of you here this morning who you've come in this morning, you're facing obstacles. And you, in all reality, you know that you need to act a certain way, but you don't know how to act. You don't know what to do. 
And today, by the time you leave here, I hope God encourages your heart enough that when you leave this place, you will leave here knowing I've got this, these problems, but I've got a big God, and this is how I should move forward. So I want us to read 1 Samuel 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 50. So listen, this is a long passage, but don't check out on me, all right? You know this passage. We've read it a lot, but don't check out on me. We're going to read the whole thing because I think we need to read the whole thing, okay? And I'm the one talking, so I get to make those decisions. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, it says this. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Sukkah and Ezekiah. And Ephes Demim, that's a tongue twister, right? That's the only one like that. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side of Israel and Israel stood on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, nine foot, nine inches tall, if you're wondering. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. I don't know if you got this yet, but Goliath liked mama's cooking. He's a big boy, all right? And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants. And all the people of Israel were like, Psh. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day, give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrath of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. So David's got a bunch of brothers, right? The three of them are older than him. They've gone to war with Saul. David stays home. You got that? So what that tells us is that David is just a little too young to be fighting, right? He's not old enough yet. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab and Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forth and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and, I, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Can I just say that's a vast overstatement? It says, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. Ain't no fighting happened yet, right? Basically all that's happened so far is one man's come out and said, y'all are punks, and the other ones are like, yep, we're punks. All right, no fighting. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took, took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle 
army against army. And David left the things to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man? Literally, I think that was probably of, you seen this dude? Nobody's going to fight him. Have you seen this man? All right. Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give, his and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in all Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? So I want you to see there, David's got a little ambition to him, right? What, what did you say that the king would, would give me if I killed him? Because I think I can take him, right? So he, he's got a little ambition. He says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it but a, not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, listen, this is great. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. Y'all might be scared. I ain't scared. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine and to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father when there came a lion or a bear. And when he says that your servant used to keep sheep, he meant like I was doing that this morning, right? Like, he's like, oh man, I used to be a shepherd boy. Like I was a shepherd boy 12 hours ago before I left. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Listen, this is great. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's man stuff right there. Your servant has struck lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me, amen, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul, let's skip down just a little bit. Let's go to verse 44. Can we do that, Russ? 43. And the Philistine, so they're coming to battle now. And the Philistine said, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? So they're coming up to David versus Goliath now. Then the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Son, I'm about to kill you and leave you here for the animals to eat you. I just want to tell you that before I do it. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I'm going to strike you down and cut off your head. I just want to tell you that before I do it to you. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to kill all your army too. That's what he tells me. 
And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword or the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Is that not a great story? Man, that's awesome. Let's, let's pray, and we're going we're gonna to dive into some stuff God wants to show us. God, I thank you for your word, God. Lord, I believe that the most powerful part of this sermon will be not one thing I say, but what your word says, Jesus Christ. It's the power unto salvation, and I pray that it would save today, God. Lord, I pray for believers here today who are struggling. May they be built up in your name. And dear God, to the person who walked in here today and does not have a relationship with you, dear God, may that change forevermore on this day. Dear God, more than anything, would you be worshiped and would you be glorified? In Christ's name I pray, amen. So, as we're talking about this, let me, do, let me do this for us. Let me set the stage because we become so familiar with stories like this that we forget to set the stage of how big of an obstacle Israel was actually facing in Goliath. So let me remind you of the situation as Israel and Goliath draw up for battle. Because if you hadn't ever read 1 Samuel, you don't know this, okay? So here's what's happened. Israel is depleted after they have been continually fighting with the Philistines. This isn't the first time these guys have gone to war. They've been fighting for a long time together, okay? And the Philistines are so significantly stronger than, the, than Israel that at one point, between the Israelites and the Philistines, the, the Philistines were so dominant over the Israelites that they had taken all of their swords and their spears and they forced the Israelites to come to them if they needed any blacksmithing done, all right? So we all look at this and we think, well, why didn't Israel fight? They might not have had any swords, all right? And listen, we're not, we, you ever heard the old expression, you don't take a knife to a gunfight? Well, you don't take nothing to a knife fight, okay? Like, you gotta have something to fight with. So that's the situation they're in even as they start. And then Goliath, is 9'9", nine, nine, and he had a spear that weighed 15, the head of it weighed 15 pounds, and his body armor coat weighed 125 pounds. And so imagine most of your army might not even have a sword. Most of us don't even have a spear. Maybe a couple people do, but certainly not everybody. And you come out to go to war, and you're thinking, maybe I'll get lucky and pick up somebody else's sword when they die. And then Goliath walks out, and you're like, you know what, man, it just ain't worth it. I can just keep going down to the Philistines when I need some horseshoes because I ain't going up against this guy, right? Like, the situation is bad. The reality is, for Israel, they're facing an obstacle that they cannot possibly conquer. There's no way for them to conquer this. This is a moment where there is no earthly option and there is no hope. Now, let me ask you this at the outset. Has anybody in this room ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever been tired and depleted and weary, and broken, and in your heart of hearts, you know that you were facing stuff in life that you just could not conquer on your own. And then you look at it even more, and get the situation don't get better. It gets worse because there's no hope, because somebody like Goliath comes and stands in front of you. 
Anybody ever been there? Because there's been days where I've looked at my life and I've looked at some of the situations and I've said, God, it just feels like I'm up against Goliath today. I really don't even want to get out of the bed. Now, a lot of y'all might have your life more together than I am, but I'm just going to be honest with you. That's how life is sometimes for me. Now, the question is, how do we respond in those moments? In those moments where there is no hope, where all the earthly resources are exhausted, you're tired and depleted and weary, how do we respond? Look at how Israel responded. Can we put verse 11 up there, Russ? Verse 11 says this. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were dismayed. The Hebrew word literally means they were broken to pieces. They were shattered. It's the same word that you would use to describe somebody who lays prostrate down in front of somebody else in fear. It says they were greatly afraid. The Hebrew literally translates they were wholly afraid. Everybody was completely consumed. So get the picture the Bible's telling us about how they've responded. They were, the picture is painting this as a bunch of grown men who were so depleted and tired and weary and hopeless and afraid that before this Goliath, they're like in the fetal position, scared to death. And to top that off, it says that Saul was scared to death. Now, that's really important. I don't know if you got that it said Saul, too, was scared to death. Why is that important? Because Saul was the man, as the king of Israel, who all the responsibility was put on to when this situation come up, Saul should have said, no, I'll handle it. And guess what the Bible says about Saul? He was taller by head than anybody else in the whole land of Israel. So Saul's not no short man himself, right? Saul is not a short man. But guess what? When the time for the fight comes and he looks out there and he sees Goliath, he goes to the back of the line and says, y'all, somebody come get him. Somebody come get him. In fact, he's such a coward that when a little 16-year-old shepherd boy comes up and says, I'll fight him, he's He's like, go ahead. Man, I, couldn't, I can't imagine somebody robbing me and my wife and my kids one day, and if I have a 16-year-old son, be like, get up there, son. Take care of this. No, he, this is a bad situation. And I want you to see the problem here. The main problem with Israel that led them to being so deathly afraid of Goliath, I want you to see what the problem is. Israel had the wrong focus. Instead of focusing on God and his might and his power, they focused on the size of their problem and their inability to conquer it. You know, when it introduces Goliath, not one time in those first 11 verses is God even mentioned. You know why? Because I wasn't thinking about God. And here's what I want you to see today. We all have the same exact problem. As we go through life and face obstacles and suffering, our main problem is not necessarily the obstacles before us, but it's that our focus is all out of whack. We focus not on God, but on ourselves. We're people created to look to God, but instead we look in a mirror. And guess what? When we, come, we have an obstacle come before us, we can't stop looking at ourselves, and we see that we're not big enough to, look at the, to tackle this obstacle, and we freak out. And you know what? We should freak out, because there are not many obstacles that we're great enough in and of ourselves to tackle. We're created to look to God, and we're looking at ourselves. We poke our lips out. We say, poor, pitiful me, I'm struggling so bad, and we fail to realize that most of our problem is not the obstacles of life, but the focus of our life. I believe this text teaches us four realities about the obstacles we face in life, and I want to walk us through really quick those four realities. And listen, as I do this, what I want you to notice is that when I talk about these realities, they all start with God. Because listen, Christian, you will never 
be able to go through life as God intended you to go through it. You will never be able to suffer well. You will never have the strength to get out of bed when there is no hope and you're tired and you're weary and depleted. You will never be able to do that in and of yourself until you get up and stop looking in the mirror and start getting on your knees and start looking to God. So here, I want to walk us really quick through four things this this passage teaches us about how we're to face obstacles, how we're to think. Number one, all right, we got number one up. Here's the first thing, if you're a note taker, I want you to see. The first thing this text teaches us is that God is bigger than our obstacles. Okay, look at this with me. 1 Samuel 17, 24 through 26. It says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of God? So I want you to see what's happened at the outset of this story. David or Israel saw a big, big problem and a small God. When David shows up, David sees a small, disrespectful giant and a big God. That's the difference in the way they approach this situation. Israel's like, oh no, what are we going to do? And David's like, why are y'all letting this man talk about my God like this? The focus is completely different. I want to read you what I, I read this about the situation. This, this sums it up perfectly. The men lacked courage to face Goliath because at this moment, the men lacked faith. At this moment, for whatever reason, despite all the stories and past experience, Goliath looked bigger than God. Each man believed that if he went out against this humongous man, he would be on his own and end up as bird food. So what made David different? It was not because he was the self-generated, raw, cool courage of the American action movie hero. What fueled David's courage was his confidence in God's promises and his power to fulfill them. The reality was David's courage wellspring. He was not self-confident. He was God-confident. David believed that God could never break his promise. And if Goliath and if Goliath made himself an obstacle to God's promise, God could flick him out of the way with a pebble. David saw God as bigger and stronger than this fearful Philistine. David's perspective, David's focus was entirely different. Here's what I want you to see this morning. When we are not focused on God, our problems seem bigger than they actually are. Can I tell you that? When you go through life and you're not focused on God, your problems seem a lot bigger than they actually are. When you are focused on God, our problems are in the hands of a mighty God. The problems look a lot smaller next to God because he's holding them. Let me encourage you with this, Christian, this morning. There is not a problem in your life that the hands of God cannot handle. So many times, though, we forget just how big and how strong and how amazing God is. Listen, I was, I, I, it's funny how God always works in your life when you're preparing a sermon. This was my, I read this passage in my quiet time this morning, and I think, or this past week, and I think what we need is to be reminded of just how big God is in our life. I want us to stop, and I want us to, for just a second, to see just how big God is. And I, maybe, maybe just then our problems will become small again. Is it, so is it all right for if just a second we stop talking about our problems and start talking about God? Is that okay with y'all? Real quick, let's, let's do that. Put up Isaiah 40, 12 through 18. For just a second, what I want us to do this morning is I want think about our problems. I want us to think about God, okay? And then let's see how our problems disappear. Look at Isaiah 40, 12 through 18. Let's remind ourselves just how strong God is. This is God saying. God, God's asking you these questions this morning. All right, listen. It's on the screen if you don't have it. 
And you really need to follow along with this. This is golden right here in the Bible. Who has, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So God asked the people of Israel, he said, have any of you ever taken all the water in the earth and held it in your hand? Because I do. God says, every ocean that exists, I take that water and hold it in the palm of my hands like that. I can't hold a 16-ounce water bottle emptied out in my hand. And God says, I hold all of it in my hands. Listen, I, this, this became real to me this week as I was standing in the Gulf, uh, right off of Panama City Beach, I was standing in the Gulf. And listen, I don't know if you've ever been to the Gulf, but the rip current down there is a lot different than the rip current at Tybee, okay? So I, st- I put my feet in the rip current at, at, uh, at the Gulf, and immediately my first concern is, number one, wow, God is awesome because this is really strong. Number two, where are River, Will, and Dawson? Because I'm scared they're in Mexico already, right? So I'm like looking around to make sure the rip current hadn't taken them off. And what I created that. I put that in my hands. I hold that. Let's keep going. It says, I marked off the heavens with a span. I, have y'all ever seen somebody survey? Jeremy could tell you a lot about this, but Jeremy walks off spans when he surveys. He just walks them off to see how far he's got to go, right? God says, that's what I did when I was measuring heaven. I just walked it off. I just took a couple steps and... That looks good. What I want you to see is that God is bigger than we can possibly imagine. Your problem seems so huge because your God is so small. Look at the rest of it. Who enclosed the earth, the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Y'all know what that's saying? It says God took a scale and a balance and he weighed the hills and he weighed the mountains and he said, you know what? I'm going to weigh this mountain right here and I'm going to call it Everest. And then he put it on earth. And then he weighed this mountain right here. He said, I'm going to call these the Rockies. And he says, I measured it with my hands. Listen, I don't know if y'all have ever seen how scales work, okay? I don't, they're going to save somebody's life. Y'all don't, I'm trying to save your life right now. Don't pay attention to me, all right? I don't know if you've ever seen how scales work, but I, let, me, let me encourage you with this, all right? My wife, ha, my wife is on a diet right now. I call it the Let's Kill Dallas diet because what she does is she takes scales and she weighs her meat out, okay? She, like, this is a four-ounce piece of meat. This is a six-ounce piece of meat. This is an eight-ounce piece of meat, all right? That's what she does. Now, here's what the Bible's saying. God does that with mountains. Can you put that in your head? How big is God that he does this with mountains? Let's keep reading it. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You know what that's saying? God has never not once come to me or you for advice. You know what? I pray all the time. And you know what's never happened? God's never, I've never woken up on one morning and God come to me and say, you know, Dallas, I'm really perplexed about how I should handle this situation. Could you just give me your advice? God's never done that. He has never once come to me and sought my counsel. You know why? Because he don't need my counsel. He's in control. He is wise. He never seeks the advice of the other. Can you put this in your head? God knows everything. What's the square root of 9,507, if there is one? God knows it. God knows everything. Look at this. Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I love this part of it right here because, listen, I don't know. If you don't have any Bible knowledge, if, you, if you've never really read through your Bible and some of the Old Testament, you might miss this, all right? But when he says he accounts Lebanon as nothing, it's not enough 
for the burnt offerings, you got to understand what come from Lebanon. Lebanon was the place where they used to get their cedar, all right? It was the place where timber came from. It's where you went if you needed some wood, all right? And I'm not talking about these were small little uh, puny trees, all right? I, I've got where, the, where I grew up at, we got sandy, really sandy soil behind our house, and they planted pine trees like in the 70s, and they grew for like 50 years, and they never got taller than I was, right? These things were just puny trees. These are not these kind of trees. These trees in Lebanon were stout, massive cedars, all right? And God says that if you cut down every tree in Lebanon and you brought it to me, it would not be my firewood. That's how big God is. And listen, I want you to see this morning that you have big problems in your life. I don't doubt that. I'm not trying to shortcut any problems that you might come up with this morning. But what I want you to see over your big problems is that there is a God who is bigger than your biggest problem. There is a God who's stronger than your strongest obstacle. I'm not trying to make light of struggles in your life. You might be here this morning. You might have an unbelieving spouse. You might have marriage struggles. You might have financial issues. There might be serious sickness or cancer or a wayward child. All those are serious issues. And I'm not trying to make light of the big, big problems in your life. What I am trying to do is show you that in light of a big God, those problems are really small. Because he can do whatever he wants to. So, Christian, let me ask you this. When you face obstacles in your life, do you know that God is bigger? Number two, let's keep going. Here's what I want you to see. God is sovereign over obstacles or suffering in our life. God is sovereign. That means God's in control over everything in our life. Here's what I want you to get from this. 1 Samuel 17, 4 through 7. If you got a Bible, if you got your Bible open, let's read that passage really quick. It, it describes Goliath. And it says, They came out of the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. Listen, it's describing, the, it's describing for us their Goliath. And as I read through this passage this week, the truth that God struck me with is this. Who do you think created Goliath? Can I ask you this? Who formed Goliath in his mother's womb? It was certainly God, right? He knitted him together. And here's what really blows my mind. God made Goliath. He stranded his DNA together such that when Goliath reached full maturity, he would be nine foot nine inches tall. God said, you know what? Let's make him nine foot nine inches tall. He's going to be huge. He's going to be mammoth. God knew what kind of problem this guy was going to cause. God knew the damage and the fear that this man was going to incite upon Israel. And get this, God knew that one day he was going to get glory over him. God puts and designs situations in our life. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that God is in control, sovereign, over the obstacles we face. He is not surprised by them. He is not caught off guard by them. In fact, he planned for them. Some of us, when we meet these obstacles, we're like, oh, God, what's going on? Are you not up there? And God's like, of course I'm up here. I, I know what I'm doing. I'm planning this out. Let me prove it to you. I want to prove to you that God's sovereign over the suffering and obstacles in our life by one man. His name was Job. Anybody ever read the story of Job? Job is such a good story because let me ask you this. 
Who brought Job to Satan's attention? It was God. Satan's, Satan comes before God one day because, listen, I don't know how you view God and Satan in your, in your worldview, but Satan's under God. If Satan wants to do something, he has to come to God and ask permission for, for it, right? He's in, he, God's in control. So Satan comes to God, and God's like, what you been doing? I'm pretty sure he threw like a dirt bag in there. What you been doing, dirt bag? I don't know, right? But he's like, what you been doing, Satan? Satan's like, I've been walking to and fro, seeing if I could tempt somebody. And God's like, okay, you thought about Job? Go tempt Job. Listen, God, um, hear me now. Don't mention me, all right? Like, if you read the story of Job, God brought Job up, though. Understand this. There was nothing that happened to Job that God was not in control over. So take hope this morning, Christian. You could be here today, and you could be facing the worst of the worst. You could be facing the most extreme circumstances. God is still in control. He is still working. God is still sitting on a throne. And listen, you may die and you may never understand why you face the obstacles you face in life. And that's okay because God's in control. You know, when everything ends in the book of Job, God never tells Job why he did what he did. You know what he does tell him? I did it. God is sovereign over the obstacles you face. Is that not the greatest hope you have this morning? I love the way John Piper puts it. John Piper, a famous preacher, says this. We play the hand we've been dealt because we know the dealer, and he never deals badly. There's not a hand you've been dealt in life that is not from God for your good. So that's number two. Number three, let's keep going. Number three, God designs obstacles for his glory. This is really important. Let's read 1 Samuel 17, 47. 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47. This is what it says. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I love, I love this 16-year-old talking trash to this man of war. He said, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. That's not even like good trash talk. It's just like I'm gonna cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts, listen, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you in a hand. Listen, this is the most important thing that I could ever convey to you from Scripture about suffering in your life. This text teaches us that God's main goal in the obstacles we face is that he would receive glory. Okay, I want to say that again. This goal teaches us, that, this text teaches us that God's main goal in the obstacles we face in life is that he would be glorified and known. David was before Goliath, why? So that all the earth may know that God exists. God says, I'm going to send this 16-year-old out there to kill this guy because when he kills him, everybody's going to know I did it, not David. So here's what I want you to know that a shadow of a doubt based on this text. God will put you in, this, in situations in your life that are too big for you to ha- handle and can only be conquered by God. Can I tell you something that's really, really untrue that Christians say a lot? Christians say a lot all the time. They say, don't worry, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Can I tell you that is the most categorically false thing I've ever heard? 
If you are a Christian, God will repetitively give you things that are more than you can handle. Why? So that when you come through the other side, you can't say, I did it on my own. I was strong enough. I I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I laced them up tight. I did it. God gives you situations that are too much for you to handle so that on the day when you pull through the other side, God and God alone will get glory for it. The Bible does say that God will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. But he always says he will give you more than you can bear. It's a good thing we've got a God who walks with us, though. And this takes us back directly to where we started today, the issue of focus. You see, so often we're so focused on ourselves that we think God's goal in life is to make us happy. Okay? And now, I think if we can be honest with ourselves, what we think and when we deal with God is that, God, you owe me happiness. That's what, that's how, is that not true? God, you, you, you exist to make me happy. That's why I need you, so you can make me happy. This is not God's goal. Listen, look at the point right there on the screen. God's goal is not for our happiness, but for his glory. And everything in life, God's goal is not our happiness, but his glory. God's not out to make you happy. He's out to be known and worshiped. We must stop believing as Christians, all right? We must stop believing that God is out to give us an easy life. An easy life does not equal happiness. So many times that's what we think. If I can just get order, if I can get an easy life, if everything will go according to plan and it be all matched up, then I'll be happy. Can I just tell you that I've been there, I've had all my ducks in a row, and I'm still not happy? When I've had those ducks in a row, I'm happy now. I'm not confessing my unhappiness before you. God is out for us to know him. And that may be hard at times, but listen, I want to share something with you. I put this in quotes. The best thing God can do for us is to let us know him, whether that be hard, whether that be easy, because you want to know what really makes you happy in your life? Knowing God. One of the main issues that we have that makes it so hard for us to deal with is our view of suffering. See, instead of viewing suffering and obstacles in our life as opportunities for God to get glory, what happens is we view them as roadblocks. Do we not? When something bad happens in our life, we say, oh no, I've got to get past this so I can get back on my road with God. I've got to get over this so that God can use me. Can I tell you this this morning? Your obstacle is how God wants to use you, okay? That thing in your life that you're saying, I've got to get past this, I've got to get over this, this situation has got to get better. I want to share with you, God is not out to get you past that. God is out to get you through that so that you, he, he can use you to give himself glory in it. Stop focusing on getting past it and start thinking about how God can use us in it. Tim Keller says this, In the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. The things that are going wrong in your life right now are not interruptions from God, but they're opportunities of God to be used. So the next time you're in the midst of an obstacle, and you, th- you realize you can't conquer it, the next time you're tired and depleted, and you think you just can't keep going, Here's what I want you to realize. God has brought you there so that once you get past it by his grace, you can tell everybody else how good of a God you really serve. Can I tell you, that's the thing that I think is missing from our witness more than anything. You know, we've all been through hard things in life. We've all been through situations where things were just not easy and we didn't feel like we could, go, uh, we could go on. But at the end of the day, God brought us through it. And you know what? Those situations come up from time to time in our life. And you, people say, how you got through it. And you know what we say? It was hard. 
That's blasphemy. You're stealing God's glory. You know what God intended you to say in that moment? Only by the grace of a good, strong, and powerful God who loved me enough to die on the cross. You know what you just did? Praise God, you witnessed to somebody. As I read this, I put, go ahead and put that missional point, Russ. As I read this, I was massively convicted by this truth. Because the reality is everything God does and everything he does, he aims to make himself known, right? God wants people to know him. However, when I look at my life and I look at the life of our church, the same cannot be said about us. God is passionate about making his name known. However, when I look at our lives, we're apathetic about making Christ's name known. There are people in our lives who desperately need to know and worship God. The question for us is this. Will you become as passionate about reaching other people for Jesus as God is about reaching other people for Jesus? Do you not see that in this text? The main thing God wants to do is for other people to know him. And the main purpose of our life after we get saved, Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples, is for other people to know him. God has given us a commission to be passionate about other people knowing Jesus. And you know what? We go through life, we go through day after day, we go through moment after moment, and we never open our mouths hoping that somebody else will know Jesus. I, I, I went to North Carolina two weekends and uh, my, I took, I'm, I'm in an evangelism class in Southeastern, and it was the coolest experience, one of the coolest experiences I've ever been in, because my professor comes, he comes up to us and he says this, he said, I bet y'all thought y'all were going to uh, sit in this class and learn a little bit about evangelism, and like, yeah, you know, we're all, we're all excited to t- be there for the class, he says, after lunch today, we're going to go out into the city and wait for us, and y'all going to tell people about Jesus, and he says, anybody got a better idea, and he said, well, I like my idea better than y'all's idea. And so that afternoon, we got up and we went out into the city and we just went door to door and we knocked on doors and we asked, can we pray for people? And we asked, can we share the gospel with people? And you know what? We did. And here's what I realized in that moment. God is way more passionate about reaching people than I am. And that can't be if we're ever going to reach this community. If there are people in your life who are lost and dead and dying and going to hell and you are not passionate about reaching them, you need to come to this altar today and repent because that is not the plan God has for us. The plan God has for us is that we become as passionate about reaching people as he is. So I got a prayer journal. I don't have it with me. I left it at the house this morning. And on that prayer journal, I've written down name after name after name. And here's what I'm going to commit to do before you this morning. This is a big deal because I don't like a lot of accountability because I don't want y'all coming up to me asking, have you been doing what you said you was going to do? And so that's what I'm going to commit to do this morning. There are people in my life who I love who if they die today will die and go to hell. I'm going to pray for them. Will you do the same thing for the people in your life? Because I'm going to be as passionate about people knowing Jesus as God is. And then the last thing, number four, is this. God has overcome our greatest obstacles at the cross. So this is a story, guys. Listen, we're we're winding down right here. This is a story that teaches us how we should think about the obstacles we face in life. But that's not the main point of this story. The plain and simple reality of of life, of this story, is that no matter how strong you are, or how good we are or how much we've all got it together there are some obstacles in life that none of us are strong enough to conquer and can I just be honest with you the enemies that none of us can conquer are sin, death and hell and the truth of life is that every person in this room is a sinner 
every single person in this room has sinned in their heart against God. Every single person in this room has said, God, I like my way better than your way. I trust myself more than I trust you. Every person has done that. And every single one of us, born Jesus coming back before, will die. And if we die, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross, we'll die and go to hell. The main thing this story teaches us is that God is going to send a Savior to conquer the enemies that we cannot conquer. The point is this. This story isn't really about David conquering Goliath at all. This story is about Jesus conquering the devil and death and sin and hell. You see, that's how you're supposed to read the Old Testament. I want to give you just a little little Bible study point right here. When you open the Old Testament, you need to ask yourself, God, how does this point toward Jesus? Because everything in that Old Testament is pointing toward a Savior who is coming. I want you to understand this. David conquered the giant who wanted to dominate Israel. Jesus conquered the giant that dominates our life, sin. Isn't it true that sin dominates your life? Men, isn't it true that no matter how pure you try to be, you can't escape those sins that so easily entangle you? Women, isn't it true that no matter how holy you try to be, you cannot escape those sins that come upon you? Does not sin dominate your life? And you might be better than me, but I walk through life every day and sin easily entangles me. And here's what I want you to know. David conquered the giant who dominated Israel. Jesus conquered the giant who dominated my life. So here's what I want to tell you. Sin does not dominate my life anymore. It might rear its ugly head, but it has been put to death. And you know what? When it pops that head up, I cut it off with the sword because Jesus conquered it. David conquered the giant that Israel could not defeat. Jesus conquered the enemy that we can't escape, death. And are you beginning to see this morning why Jesus is so important? The cross is so important because it testifies, just like David and Goliath, that there was not one thing we could do to save ourselves. Hear me this morning. You could be the best person in this room. You could write your tithe check every week. God bless you. I hope you do. You could serve orange and blue and VBS and everything else. And here's what David and Goliath teaches us. You will not be strong enough to save yourself. That if there's not a Savior who comes before you and kills the giants that you cannot conquer, you won't be able to do it. And here's what I want you to see this morning. That Savior has come, and His name was Jesus Christ, and He died on the cross to, de- to defeat the enemies that we couldn't defeat. And here's what I know. God been put- has been putting this on my heart so heavy. So what I want us to do is I want us to bow our heads for just a minute. Can we just have every head bowed and every eyes closed? There are some of you here today who are fighting the enemy you can't defeat. You're fighting the enemy of sin. You're fighting the enemy of condemnation. And you know, listen, if you, I, I know you hear me right now. You know deep in your heart that you are a sinner. And you know, you might not ever admit it, but you know deep in your heart that when you stand before a godly, a holy God, you will be condemned because you can't beat sin. You know that that sin comes on you over and over again. And today I want you to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you to free you from the power of sin. He died on the cross for you so that you could have a personal relationship with the God of the universe and on the day you die, have eternal life, not eternal condemnation. 
Now, here's what I'm gonna ask you this morning. Everybody's head bowed, everybody's eyes closed. Is there anyone here today that would say, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus to save me from the sin I can't beat. I wanna repent of my sin, give my life and my heart to Jesus today. Is that anyone right now? Here's what I want you to do. All eyes closed. If that's you, would you just raise your hand today? If you say, I'm a sinner and I wanna be saved today, would you raise your hand? You don't have to keep wrestling with that thought. There's freedom. Is there anybody here today who'd say, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus? Okay, here's what I want us to do. Everybody look back at me. If you just raised your hand, there's going to be me and there's going to be a prayer team right here. And we're going to be standing here at the altar. I want you to come to me and you say, I know I need what you're talking about. I'd love to pray with you. Uh, we got some other people that love to pray with you. Even if you didn't raise your hand, you say, I still need that, we're going to be right there waiting on you today. And I want to close with this. How is it that we should face obstacles as Christians? It's the last thing I want us to look at. Here's I want, three things I want you to take with you. As Christians, here's what we do. We face obstacles with confidence. David ran toward Goliath. He didn't back down. He didn't just stay in the bed and cover up and say, oh God, I can't keep going. What am I supposed to do? He ran toward Goliath. He spoke confidently. He said, I'm going to kill you and cut your head off. That's confidence. Do you have confidence that your God will help you conquer every giant? We're supposed to meet obstacles with focus. David was more concerned with God than himself. You know, he didn't. He never entered the possibility of I'm just going to die and it might stink if I die. He never thought about himself. He thought about God. And here's the last thing. We have to face obstacles with contentment. And I want to tell you this. Your life may never be easy. There are some of you here today, you're, you're struggling and it may not ever get any better. I'm not going to be that preacher who tells you everything's always going to be easy. You might be here and have a marriage that's struggling. That marriage might always struggle. You might have a child who's wayward. That child might always be wayward. But here's what I want to show you. That we have to face obstacles with contentment. Because here's what David was prepared to do when he walked out of that field. He was prepared to die. And what I want to ask you is if nothing ever gets any better in your life, is God still enough? Is If everything continues to go exactly like it is, is God enough to sustain you? So we're going to pray. And if you need to receive Jesus this morning, I'm going to be right here. Come pray with me. Christian, this altar is open for those of you who are facing obstacles. Come down here and pray that God would help you respond to obstacles like a Christian should. Let's pray. God, I love you. God, I praise you. God, I know, God, that at best, dear Lord, I'm just foolish ramblings. Dear God, at worst, dear God, I mess things up. So dear God, I just pray. Dear God, that you would just take this this effort today, dear God, and glorify your name in it, Jesus. Please do that, God. Lord, I know that there are people here today who are sinners in need of a relationship with you. God, would you please save them today by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, I'm going to leave here trusting that no matter what obstacles I face, God, you are big enough and strong enough to conquer all. In Christ's name I pray.